I'm very happy to be able to speak to you all this morning. Um, Before I begin, would you bow your heads with me? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come and just take over? In Jesus' name. I'm preaching from a neglected passage in Luke's gospel. In fact, you might just rush right over it if you're reading through the book. But in the context of Luke tells, uh, of the story Luke tells in Luke Acts, uh, I think it has some very important implications for how the church responds to situations of conflict and opposition. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any lack of that. Uh, in the world around us this, uh, these days, huh? Some of you know I'm writing a book about the way that we talk to each other and disagree about God. Um, just as a cultural observation, I think the way that we disagree with each other and respond to each other has gotten a lot worse in the past few decades. And I put that down uh, to the advent of the Internet. Uh, back in the early days of the net, Theorists were saying, oh, this is going to bring people together all over the world and we're going to sit around a big digital campfire and sing Kumbaya. Uh, And that hasn't happened at all. It has brought people together, but it's also magnified and exacerbated uh, our differences and divisions in a way that very few people saw coming. Um, Just consider the example of things like online forums, Facebook discussions, I participate in online forums for things like fly fishing, soccer, cooking, automobiles, and I'm constantly amazed at how quickly disagreements escalate and just go off the rails. And, you know, finally someone hurls an expletive at someone and tells them to go off and die, and we're talking about trout flies. I mean, how, you know, how is that possible? How did it come to this? You, you never talk to someone like this face-to-face. N- never, never mind online discussions about politics and religion. And, you know, those were two of the three things we never talked about in my family. It was politics, religion, and everything else. Um, and <laughs> but I, I just refuse to talk about politics and religion uh, online anymore. Because we, we do all we can to demonize the other. We make, the vilest, we make them the vilest pool of scum to ever ooze across the face of the earth. You know, you, you socialist, fascist, heretical, Roman Catholic. <laughs> you, know, you kind of run out of steam when you come to the point where you get to what they actually are. It's a good thing Jesus loves you, right? then someone inevitably breaks out what I like to call the convince font. Caps lock, you know, because that always changes people's minds when you use all capital letters, right? And even more troubling, what I've observed is the way that we treat each other online now has a tendency to rebound into our face-to-face encounters. Uh, And that's quite troubling. And of all people, as God's people, We should know better by now, huh? What might this little neglected episode in Luke's gospel have to say about the way that we respond to opposition? 
If you have a map of the Holy Land in your head, Jesus is traveling south from Galilee to Judea. He wants to go to Jerusalem, and he has to pass through Samaria. Jews tried to avoid Samaria whenever they could. In fact, sometimes they'd travel on the east side of the Jordan. But if you couldn't avoid it, you just put your donkey into high gear and you powered through Samaria till you got to where you wanted to go. The relationship between Jews and Samaritans weren't very good. Uh, I suppose the most that the average Christian knows about this relationship is from Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well uh, in John's Gospel. The woman says to Jesus, you Jews say we should worship at the Mount, in, uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Samaritans say we, we should worship at the mountain here in Mount Gerizim. Where to worship? Now, now that doesn't sound like very much of a deal-breaking dispute. Uh, sort of like hymns versus choruses, immersion versus sprinkling. Good thing Protestants don't divide over these issues, right? Um, but, but the dispute between... Jews and Samaritans over the correct mount on which to worship was just the tip of the ice worship berg. To someone like me who studies different religious traditions, this conflict is interesting because it's the story of a religious orthodoxy that's rubbing up against this heretical religious other, and it's very problematic. The, the Jews knew they didn't have anything to do with the pagan Roman religion. That, there wasn't a question there. But with the Samaritans, it was a bit different, and here's why. Here's my quick and dirty history of the Samaritans. They were the descendants of the people who had lived in the northern kingdom, some of whom had remained there after it fell to the Assyrians and the leading citizens were deported. So some of these remaining folks then married into the pagan people that the Assyrians brought in to recolonize the land. And, and 2 Kings chapter 17 said uh, this led to religious syncretism. You can read that part of the story for yourself. But by Jesus' time, uh, Samaritans were strict monotheists, um, but the Jews never let them forget this dubious ancestry uh, that they had. Theologically, the Samaritans viewed only the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative, and they insisted that Mount Gerizim, not Mount Zion, was the correct place to worship. In fact, they built a Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim in the 4th century B.C. But here's the thing about that temple. Uh, when the Seleucids, when Antiochus Epiphanes was harassing Judea in the 2nd century, the Samaritans wimped out. They said, we don't have anything to do with the Jews. In fact, you, you can rename our temple the Temple of Zeus Hellenios. They just wimped out. So they escaped Antiochus' persecution, while the faithful Jews, many of them, paid with their lives. When the great Jewish military commander, John Hyrcanus, uh, won a brief period of independence for Judea, it was all about payback, and Hyrcanus went and destroyed uh, the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So you see, there's literally bad blood between Jews and Samaritans, both claiming to be true worshipers of Yahweh going back for centuries. Uh, this, this cracks me up in kind of a tragic way. According to Jewish tradition, at some point, 300 priests and 300 rabbis gathered in the temple court in Jerusalem, the big Jerusalem curse fest, and they cursed Samaria, uh, Samaria with all of the curses in the Mosaic Law. Wow, what, a, what an event, huh? Uh, you remember what the Jewish 
leaders how they wanted to curse Jesus in John chapter 8. They called him demon-possessed and a Samaritan, right? Because demon-possessed wouldn't be bad enough, you know. You're a, you're a demon-possessed, but you're also a Samaritan, just to make sure that, that you can uh, condemn him as, as worst as possible. So you have two groups of people who share this common religious heritage, but one of them has a dodgy history that makes it very problematic to relate to them. You're related, you really wish you weren't. And you do everything you can to try to avoid them. Uh, Because as we all know, all of us know, arguing with relatives is the worst. So it's not surprising that the Samaritans don't want to welcome Jesus. Now what some of you may find surprising is the reaction of James and John. Now I have a very active imagination. And when I read this scene, I picture a couple of cocky frat boys. You know, their baseball caps turned around, chest all puffed out, uh, ego all mortally wounded. You know, why won't you help us, man? What did we ever do to you? You want to start something? It's this kind of attitude, this sort of bluster. So they ask Jesus, So Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these guys? Because they have it coming, man. Where'd they get this idea from? I mean, when Jesus commissions the disciples there to preach the gospel, heal people, cast out evil spirits, there's no flamethrower provision in this commissioning. Some of your Bibles might have a note that refer you back to 2 Kings, the story of Elijah, where he calls fire down from heaven to consume these arrogant military commanders who come to bundle him up and take him back to the king of Samaria. That happened 800 years before this event, more than 800. James and John, they're still hoping they have a shot, right, that they can be grandfathered into this sort of thing. James and John act like what I'm calling bros in the Gospels. And you're in a college town. You should know this. But if you don't read the Urban Dictionary or listen to BuzzFeed, a bro has been defined in various ways over the past decade. And basically, I'm using the term this morning to refer to a really cocky, impetuous young man, just full of himself, way overconfident, and liable to respond to any opposition with a lot of bluster and bravado and chest thumping, that sort of thing. Jesus calls James and John sons of thunder uh, in Mark's gospel. I reckon that's sarcastic Jesus that's speaking at that point. And their behavior in this passage that we read this morning isn't an isolated instance of bro-ish behavior. Uh, In the immediately previous passage, if you look at it, John says to Jesus, now get this, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we told him to step off, man, because he doesn't hang with us. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is is ridiculous. I'm just imagining John saying, hey, buddy, relax, because it's better this person should have a demon than, you know. I mean, what, what can you possibly say? Satan's kingdom is being overthrown, and you want to stop it? You know, can I just add, folks, people aren't our enemies because they don't have the password to our denominational tree fort. You see what I'm saying here? 
In Mark's gospel, James and John actually have the chutzpah to come up to Jesus and say, Yo, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Can you do that for us, Jesus? Can, can you imagine your kids asking you this? Or if you're a teacher, your students? Imagine this. You know, my students. Prof, we want you to do whatever we ask, okay? I'd be like, how about a big bucket of, are you kidding me? I mean, you've got to be, that's ridiculous. The sons of thunder want seats of honor at Jesus' left and right hand. And Jesus says, I don't really think you know what that even entails. Not yet. I find it hilarious that in Matthew's gospel, it's actually James and John, their mother, that asks Jesus this respect. The bros have a helicopter parent in Matthew's gospel. I mean, think about that. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? These guys. I mean, they would probably like to take a selfie with Samaria in flames in the background. You know, divine vengeance for the wind here. Right? And Jesus says... No. In fact, the only thing Luke records is that Jesus turns and rebukes them. And they went on to another village. What might Jesus have said to them? You know, right in in this same chapter when his disciples couldn't cast out a demon, Jesus says, you faithless and perverse generation, how long must I be with you and bear with you? I suspect the rebuke here was something along those similar lines. How long have I been teaching you and you still don't get it? You of all people should know better. Luke records five times Jesus giving a rebuke in his gospel. Uh, Jesus rebukes the fever afflicting Simon Peter's mother-in-law, the demon who possesses a man in Capernaum, the unruly wind and waves, the demon possessing the sons, the man's son in this very same chapter, and his own disciples for wanting to call down fire from heaven. So, so well done, disciples. You've made Jesus' rebuke list, right? Unruly wind and waves, natural disasters, you know, illness and demons. Well done. Now, Jesus doesn't want them to call down fire. He rebukes them and moves on to another village. He's focused on his mission, as if to say, James, John, listen to me. Instead of wasting our energies on invective and recrimination against people who won't welcome us, we have to stay the course. We have to proclaim God's kingdom and make it real for people. It's so easy to get sidetracked, bros. You need to follow me to Jerusalem. You need to follow the way of the cross. Look, folks, I don't know any other way to make the offense of this passage really sink in in a way that means something today than to ask you all in your own minds to substitute a group of people for the Samaritans here, a group of people that really gets under your skin, I'm not going to tell you what group that has to be. But I do know that if we're content to let this passage speak to us only about Samaritans in the ancient world, then we might as well just move it into a history museum. 
because I don't think any of us here today have, an, have a beef with actual Samaritans. You understand what I'm saying? And if you do, wow. I mean, you just need to get out more. Um, I, I, I have to be really clear here. I, I'm not saying that Jesus condones Samaritan theology or practice. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, he never says Samaritan theology, Jewish theology, it's all good, right? But for whatever reason, in Luke's gospel, the Samaritans keep popping up in surprising ways whenever Jesus wants to make a point about God's kingdom. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the very next chapter, he doesn't say, well, how much better the Samaritan's actions would have been if only he had the correct theology. The point is, he's closer to the kingdom than you all are. In the story of healing the ten lepers in Luke 17, Jesus doesn't say, you know, you there, the leper. No, the other leper, the Samaritan leper. Let me drop some correct theology on you before I drop some healing on you. His point is, how is it that this man, whom you all despise, knows more about gratitude than you do? The members of the true faith. What group could you substitute for the Samaritans if you're going to retain the offense of these passages and make any sort of real-life application? Well, folks, how are we doing? We may not call down fire from heaven on those who oppose us, but sometimes we'd sure like to. We certainly resort to calling down Facebook fire. Make our opponents as vile and despicable as possible. Even call them demon-possessed and send them a Twitter storm of judgment and brimstone. I think sometimes we even come close to imagining Jesus as a kind of evangelical Thor. You know, this God who's going to rain down wrath on, on our opponents. And the God of thunder would be the perfect patron deity for the sons of thunder, huh? Is it possible? Are we known more for our anger, for our rage against people who don't see things as we do, who oppose us, than simply following Jesus to the next village and the next village and on to Jerusalem? It's highly revealing if you keep reading Luke's account Jesus doesn't throw down with the Sanhedrin in chapter 22. He doesn't bring down the thunder when Herod's questioning him. He doesn't respond to the thief who's mocking him on the cross. Jesus even tells Peter in Matthew's gospel, you know, I could. I could call down the heavenly cavalry and smoke this place. But that's not my mission. And it's still not. The only flames that Jesus would ever command out of heaven are the tongues of Holy Spirit fire in Acts chapter 2, when all of those assembled heard the mighty acts of God in their own language. And as the story continues to unfold in Acts, the one bro, the one son of thunder, James, would become the first apostle to be martyred, the victim of Herod's aggression. The other bro, John, would go with Peter, Acts chapter 8, back to Samaria, 
back to the Samaritans who had received Christ and pray that they would now receive the Holy Spirit. John, of course, would finish his days in exile in the Isle of Patmos. And this bro in the history of the church would come to be known as the Apostle of Love. Both brothers would come to know what following Jesus, following the way of the cross, really cost. It's so easy today, friends, to get caught up in these endless rounds of shouting and denunciation and caps-locking people. You know what I'm talking about. That doesn't change people. That doesn't win people over. We still don't get it. And of all people, we should know better. What will it take for us to put aside our desire for fire from heaven and to follow Jesus to the next village and the next village and to Jerusalem? To stay focused on our mission. May God help us this morning to hear the rebuke of Christ and to submit our broish tendencies to the fire of the Holy Spirit and remain faithful followers of Jesus, no matter what the cost. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I thank you for your kind attention this morning.